1 Samuel chapter 17, a familiar passage uh, in the Bible, uh, certainly in 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at David and Goliath today, and that's the big idea of the message, facing giants. Facing giants. You know, as we get into it, and we do so recognizing that every single one of us comes here knowing that giants are real, right? Giants are very, very real. Maybe uh, today, those of you dealing with, with giants, man, you know all too well that giants are real. Some of you, again, coming today, you're unemployed, you're facing serious illness, you're drowning in bills. Some of you coming today struggling with habitual sin. Some of you coming today dealing with depression, haunted by your past, scarred by abuse or abandonment. Some of you coming burdened with grief or dealing with crippling fear or maybe even thoughts of suicide today. I don't know what it is, but you do, and you brought it here with you today because you are wrestling with a giant, and you know today that giants are very, very real. Some of us come here today, maybe, you know, we're not currently facing a giant, but we don't have to look too far back in our rearview mirror to remember a time when perhaps we were facing a giant. You know, there's, there's a, a saying about motorcycle riders that correlates as it pertains to facing giants, those that ride motorcycles. They say there's, there's two types of motorcycle riders, those that have been down and those that are going down, right? And there's, there's, there's two types of, of, of giants that we face, the giants that we're currently facing or the giants that we're going to be facing uh, in, in the near future. Uh, it's interesting, I, I share that, state, that saying about motorcycle riders, you know, again, in the Philippines, we ride motorcycles everywhere we go, and when you ride the motorcycles out on the highway, um, the, the highways in the Philippines are kind of like, imagine, you know, I don't know, t- the, the Target Shopping Center in Temecula, and take out any of the stop signs in there, imagine the Target Center at Christmas time uh, with no stop signs, and imagine driving, you know, four or five hours in that, then you get an idea of what it's like to drive on the roads in the Philippines, <clears throat> and you're driving a motorcycle, they got these huge dump trucks that are going. We went on this one venture, we're, we're driving north to, to check out the damage from the second typhoon that had come just, you know, back at the beginning of the, uh, the year, um, the end of, just the end of the year, and, and um, wanted to go see if we could find areas that had some damage that we hadn't seen yet, maybe some additional opportunities that we could do there. And so <clears throat> we rode, in one way it was three and a half hours maybe by motorcycle, um, and so we rode on this, and you're passing, you know, 10-ton ton dump trucks, and, you know, and the people drive crazy there. And so, you know, you're getting between, you know, these cars. Well, I'm, I'm passing a guy, and there's a dump truck coming the other way, and this guy fades out, and now there's nowhere for me to go. And so I, I have to stop and get behind this guy, or I'm going to get crushed by this dump truck. And so, so I, I, hit, I had um, instantaneously, I hit the rear brakes, and I'm sliding. I'm thinking, just it, if I high center, I'm under this guy's wheels, you know, and I downshifted real quick, and I got behind the guy. But I had it flash through my mind at that point, you know, two types of riders, those that have been down, those that are going down, I'm like, maybe this is it. One of the guys in our group actually went down on that ride, but he went down into, a, we were in a field, in a muddy field. He actually went down into a muddy cow pasture covered with cow manure, um, and we all stayed upwind of him for the rest of the day. <clears throat> but, uh, 
two types of riders, those that have been down, those that are going down. We're talking about giants, two types of giants, the giants that you're currently facing or the giants that you're going to face, right? And so we all can relate to this message. We understand that giants are very real. And what I want you to get in your mind today, hey, what are your giants? What are the giants that you're facing? And I want you to just have that fresh in your mind as we get now into this story and we take the the transferable lessons and we look at the two distinctly different reactions, the reaction of King Saul and the reaction of David, the man who's anointed now as king. They have two completely different reactions to Goliath, this giant, and there's a lot of lessons for us to learn. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damon. Now, the Philistines were perpetual enemies of Israel. We last saw them in chapter 14, and the Philistines serve as a picture of Satan, the greater enemy of God's people. And so metaphorically, they serve as a picture of Satan, our great enemy. And just as we read here that they attacked in the area which belongs to Judah. Do you, take, do you note that there in the first verse? They, they, they attacked, the Philistines gathered and attacked in an area which belongs to Judah. In other words, they came into territory that wasn't theirs. They invaded Israel's territory. And this is exactly what the enemy does. This is exactly how Satan operates. Jesus told a parable in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13, and he basically said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in a field. But while he slept, his enemy came and he sowed tares into that seed. Sowed weeds into that that field. And, And this is exactly what the enemy does. He comes in and he invades the Lord's territory of your life and he attacks. This is what Peter warned about. He said, uh, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, resist him. And that word resist, it means to stand against. Very important. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Paul had a similar warning to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Same word, that we need to stand against. And this brings up the first point here in our lesson as it pertains to facing giants. If you're taking notes, you want to write it down. We must face our giants. You need to face your giant. Now, that sounds fairly straightforward, but the truth is, and we need to make it our first point, because not everybody will face their giant. Not everybody will do that. I mean, I remember, you know, a story or an experience. We were on a men's retreat in Catalina, and one of the guys there was a Taekwondo instructor. He was actually a fourth-degree black belt in Taekwondo. And one of his students, who actually was a black belt, was there, and, he got, and they were sparring. Guess who got the better of him? The guy with the fourth-degree black belt, right? Actually, I take it back. He wasn't a, a black belt, but whatever he was, he's sparring with this fourth-degree black belt, and the, the, stu- the instructor is just messing with the guy. Finally gets to the point where the guy just balls up, and, and, and he's sitting there, <clears throat> and he's, <clears throat> he's hitting him, you know, just strategically. He says, I'm not going anywhere. 
You know, just because you're hiding from me doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. And that's always stuck with me because that's the enemy. A lot of times our response is just to ball up. Where we won't face our giant. And, and so what happens, how do people ball up? How, how is it that they don't face their giant? Well, a lot of times they'll escape. They'll escape into drugs. They'll escape into alcohol. They'll escape into sexual promiscuity. There's a lot of different ways that people can escape their giants and really not face their giants. Another way that people escape their giants and don't face their giants is that they just go through the motions, but they never really take a stand. And notice, this is exactly what Saul does. We, we continue, verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. <clears throat> they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and a valley between them. I've actually been there. I've been to Israel, been to this valley. We're going to read that in a little while that David shows up. He gathers five smooth stones. He sinks one of them in Goliath's head. Spoiler alert, right? Too late. You've all read the story. And uh, I've taken home several smooth stones from the valley of Elah. I know many people have. I suspect sometimes the Israeli government probably trucks in smooth stones that they dump in, you know, just because so many will take them as souvenirs. But I've been there, and it's amazing. You see the mountain on one side, you see the mountain on the other. You're standing in the valley, because that's where the road goes through now. And uh, this is where they're at. And uh, so they have a valley between them. Verse 4, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, that's over nine feet tall. Uh, He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. This is well over 200 pounds, just his coat that he's wearing. And he had a bronze armor on, on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. I, I, I constructed a, a pergola in my backyard, and I was using 4 by 4 posts to put in there. That's, that's, uh, you get the rough idea. Four by four post, that's kind of like that. And uh, it says it was like a weaver's beam. Um, And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. That's like 25 pounds, all right? So so just to put it in perspective, imagine your spear is a four by four post, and at the end of it, you've got your Thanksgiving turkey on this thing, you know? That's, That's what this guy's chucking around, you know? He's a big boy, and he's well armed, okay? And uh, it says, and his shield bearer went before him. So if he's not as opposing enough, when you come against him, you're really coming, it's really two against one, because he's got a guy out in front of him who's got a big old shield to to protect and to, to stand between you and him. And it says, verse 8, then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and he said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you, the servants of Saul. In other words, I'm your enemy. I'm standing right here. You're the, you're the servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, and then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight Together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, 
They were dismayed. They were greatly afraid. Now, the first thing to notice in these verses is that Saul and his men are drawing up, the text says, in battle array. That word array, it means to line up and to arrange in order. Okay? And so, so the, the idea here is that they're taking their, their, their places as soldiers as they would take in order to uh, affect a, a military attack. Okay, they're all lined up taking their places. Everybody's in their place. But, but in reality, they have no intention of attacking. That's what we read here. They're just going through the motions. They're a bunch of pretenders here. I mean, they might as well be lining up for a parade. You know, they're bar- total Barney Fifing it. You know, if, you, if you're old enough to remember Barney Fife. He's got his, he's got his pistol, right? It's, it's not loaded. He's got one bullet and it's in his pocket, you know? And, and so the, the issue here is these guys, they don't even have, they don't, they got no ammo. They're, they're, they're there. They have the capacity to fight, but they have no intention of fighting. This is all show. And, and it's important to point this out because this describes many Christians today. Many Christians today who are facing giants in their life. And what happens is they come to church and they, they line up, they, t- they, they, they arrange in order. This is what we do. We come to church, and, and I'm going to worship the Lord, and I'm going to bring my Bible, and I'm going to, you know, and, and I'm going to get fed here. But really, for many, it's just going through the motions. It's, it's hey, I'm in church, but really, I've got this giant that's in my life, and, and I am not facing my giant. I'm just, I'm just going to church, but I'm not really... <sighs> Man, I got no victory in my life. I'm not really engaging the enemy. This is a ritual. This is a habit. But I'm really not engaging the enemy in my life. There's just no victory. You got to ask, or rather answer the question right now at this point, is that you? Do you have a giant in your life that, man, you, you've really, I mean, you, you, you're just sort of, you're lining up, but you're doing nothing. To, to, to fight that giant. You're really not facing your giant. Man, it's something we got to take a walk with. As you consider that, I want you to notice in verse 4, it says there that a champion went out from the enemy camp. That word champion is interesting. If you want to circle it nearby, uh, you could write one who stands between, because that's what it means in the Hebrew. One who stands between. Now, the idea here is that he's the authoritative representative. Goliath is the one that, hey, if you beat me, you win. And what you need to see here is the larger implication, okay? The larger implication is this, that this is a picture of Satan. That's what you have to see. Goliath himself, a picture of Satan, the one who stands between you and victory, okay? And there he stands, and and you need to take note of how he operates. This is critically important today. Look at how he operates, He's very strong. He's frightening as anything to look at. You look at him and you think, there's no way that I could take him. And so this is exactly where Saul and the whole army is. To the point where nobody's going out. They're all quaking in their boots. And and so Satan, very strong, very intimidating. And he makes a point... To, 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 to come off as intimidating as he possibly can. 
And he does that on purpose in your life and in mine. Why? Well, because his primary strategic tactic is to get you to fear. Is to get you to fear. And he works on that. This is why God says over and over in his word, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Why? Because the enemy's primary tactic is to get you to fear. If he can get you to fear, he can get you to doubt God. He can get you not to take take your rightful place as a child of God. The Bible says we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's there's no weapon that's formed against you that can prosper. But Satan, if he can get you to fear, if he can get you to doubt, if he can get you to run away, man, then then he wins. And so he puts everything into this thing. This is his primary strategic tactic. If he can get you on your heels, if he can get you fearful, if he can get you running, he wins. And even if you don't run, if he gets you on your heels, if he gets you fighting against him in timidity and and more of a reactor than than an attacker, then what happens is he's got a decided advantage. And that's what he's looking to do all along. And so we have to face our giants. Secondly, we must not fear our giants. We must not fear our giants. Again, Satan's primary tactic is to scare you, to get you to doubt and fear. And you see it over and over again in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. First thing he goes after, wait a minute, did God really say that? No, 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 that's not what God was saying. Here's what God was saying, Eve. He, He doesn't want you to be like him. He's trying to keep something from you. See, and, and so there he is, and he gets her, he wanted to get to her and, 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 and Adam to the place where they doubt and where they fear. We see him doing the same thing with Abraham. Back when he was called Abram, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, hey, go to a land which I, which I will show you. And so, so he's there, and he's on the way, and he's following the Lord. And the Lord has profound plans for Abram, he, he wants him to become Abraham, the father of many nations. He's going to bless him with a son. And through that son, he's going to bring ultimately the Messiah. And, and he's going to, to bring salvation. God has big plans for Abram. And so Abram, as he's following the Lord and he goes into Egypt with his wife Sarai, well, the enemy starts whispering, Satan starts whispering doubt and fear into his heart and into his mind. And then all of a sudden, now we see Abram going, oh, wait a minute, my wife's hot, and uh, we're going to go in here, and the people are going to look at her, and if I tell them that she's my wife, they're going to kill me, so, so I'm going to doubt, I'm going to fear, and I'm not going to, you know, God's called me to this, he's going to see me through it, right? No, 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 I, I need to take matters into my own hands, I need to lie. She's not, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Pharaoh's like, cool, well, she's hot, I'm going to take her for myself. And, you know, God shows up and all of a sudden Pharaoh is, is you know, realizes, dude, you, you almost made me buy the farm here kind of deal. What's happening? Satan, man, he's sowing seeds of doubt and fear. He wants to scare Abram. Listen, he wants to scare you. He wants to scare you. What is it that you, what you're going through right now? The, whatever that issue is with the giant in your life. Are you scared of it? The enemy loved to have you be scared of it and just focus in nothing but fear on this thing. And see, that's exactly what's happening here. And I want you to notice it's working really well. 
Goliath goes out there, struts his stuff, and everybody, their eyes are glued on him. They're fixed on him. Every last one of them. Everybody's staring at the giant. All their compasses are set on the giant. All the reports that they report, they're all focused around the giant. People know his taunts, they know his demands, they know his size, they know his strut, they know everything about him. Listen, they have majored in Goliath. They haven't even minored in God. You don't even see them mentioning God here. I mean, they're not even minoring in God. He's not even on their curriculum. They have have one major, they're majoring in Goliath. They know everything about Goliath, and he's got them scared. And some of you are doing the same thing. You're majoring in your Goliath. You're majoring in your giant. Only your giants don't parade up and down the hills of Elah. Your giant walks through your office. Your giant walks through your bedroom at night. You know that? You know that walk? You know that strut? You know that taunting voice? Hey, at two in the morning, you sure do. Right? I mean, who can relate with me? That two o'clock in the morning giant that's just right there, right? Why is it always worse at two or three o'clock in the morning? It's just the worst, man, and he's walking right through your bedroom, and all you can do is look. All you can do is stare. All you can do is major in the giant at that point. I'm going to die. It's all over. There's no hope. And the enemy says, yeah, that's exactly where I want you to give up. Just quit. Yeah, there is no hope for you. So that, that giant, he's not on the heels of Elon in your life. He's in your bedroom. He's at your workplace. He's in your classroom. He brings bills you can't pay. He brings grades you can't make. He brings people that you can't please into your life. He brings drugs and alcohol that you can't resist. Pornography that you can't refuse. Past that you can't shake. And a future that, that, that you can't face. And this is what he's doing, and he's bringing this, and you're overwhelmed, and you're like, what on earth is going to happen? You know Goliath very well. You know his walk, you know his talk. Let me ask you, is he all you can see? Because David saw and heard more. Verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. Notice there at the beginning of verse 13, it says the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul. Again, in case you didn't get it, verse 14, it says, David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul. Remember, he would, was summoned to the palace to play the, the, the harp for Saul when Saul would be overcome by this, this menacing spirit. David, because he's a spirit-filled man of God, anointed now, would go, and when he would worship, Saul would be comforted. That's what it's talking about there. And he occasionally went and he returned from Saul, here it is, to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Humble man, faithful man. He's anointed to be the king of Israel, but what does he do? 
He remains faithful in that place where God called him. Feeding his father's sheep, tending his father's sheep. And that factors so much into his development and into what God would do in his life. Just faithfully being the Lord's servant where the Lord has him. And the Philistine, verse 16, drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. 40 days, a, time, a, a, a number of judgment and of trial. And then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. And now Saul and all they of the men of the Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. They weren't fighting. They were, they were gathered. They were assembling. They were Barney fifing it, but they weren't fighting. And so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper. Again, he, he, he wants to be attentive. Hey, let's make sure they're cared for while I'm gone. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And he took the things that his father had told him to take, the cheeses and all, and he went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp as the army was going out to, to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. He ran to the army, and he came, and he greeted his brothers. Now, stop right there and take note. David's seminary was tending sheep, and he was faithful to do it. And this is where, and you read through the Psalms, and you see, what is it that David learned as he was faithful in that place where he was when God called him, as he remained faithful to tend the sheep and to, just to be this humble man saying, Lord, I'm yours and I'm available to you. And as God has him in this place, this humble place of tending sheep, it's there he learns that the heavens declare the glory of God. As we read in the Psalms, it's there he learns that God has set his glory above the heavens, that God is mindful of men, that he ordained him to have strength over his dominion. It's there in that place where David would learn, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He does. The Lord does. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see the difference in perspective? Saul and all the Israelites, they're going, Goliath, 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 majoring in Goliath. And David is majoring in God. God's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me. I have a different perspective coming into this situation with this giant. And we'll find out shortly as he shares this perspective with Saul that, that he had some adversities there in those fields tending those sheep. That, that he would have a lion and a bear come and attack. And that he would have occasion to be tested there in that wilderness. And that there he trusted even then in the Lord and he would come to find out that the lion and the bear 
These were preparing him for a greater attack. That he would have, hey, you don't think it was a giant when he had to face a lion? And a giant when he had to face a bear? But what he would come to find out is that was the junior varsity, man. God was preparing him for a much greater Goliath in his future. When we're in the midst of our preparation, we rarely see how God's going to use it. But trust me, God uses it. He's using it in your life right now. And it may be and <laughs> that, that right now, this thing that you say, I've got a Goliath in my life. I might, you know, you might know in the years to come, well, I thought that was the Goliath. That was the lion. That was the bear. There was a bigger thing coming out. You're like, Pastor Ted, you're not comforting me right now. And be comforted because God's faithful. And what he calls you to, he'll carry you through. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, David was young in years, but he was old in experience because he had watched the hand of the Lord in his dealings with him. Thus he gained his experience by the active discharge of his duty as a shepherd. He did what he was called upon to do with a holy daring, and in so doing, he learned the faithfulness of God. Many men have lions and bears, but no experience. Man. Brings us to our third point, that we must focus on our God to defeat our giants. Not focusing on your giant. You need to focus on God. To defeat the giants. Now I want you to notice here. That, that, that David. His first discussions. They're all centered. Around God and not the giant. We pick it up where we left off. Verse 23. He's left the supplies with the keeper. He ran to his brothers. Verse 23. Then as he talked with them. There was the champion. The Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. Underline that in your Bible. Because the implication here is that this uncircumcised Philistine, which is what David's going to call him, who's shouting blasphemies against the Lord, everyone else focused on the giant, fearing, quaking, David hears what this guy says. And he hears what everybody else didn't hear. That's the implication here. That David heard at face value what was going on. This man is mocking the Lord God Almighty. This guy does not know what he's doing. You know, it might be a situation like this. You know, you, you go into to a scene, you're, you know, maybe you're, you're, you go somewhere, you got a guy with you who's, uh, you know, fourth degree black belt or whatever, but he just looks like, you know, just average Joe. And then someone walks up to him and they start taunting him. You're like, dude, you do not know what you're doing right now. This guy's going to mess you up, you know. And this is, this is the whole picture. David heard it. David's like, did he just say that to God? Holy moly. Verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him. They're majoring in Goliath. They're dreadfully afraid. Verse 25, so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, 
and give him his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Everybody's always interested in that. Not only do you get the babe, but you don't have to pay taxes. Verse 26, Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away, listen, takes away this reproach from Israel? David, he's got his finger on the pulse of what the problem is. This man's a a reproach against Israel. He's a reproach against God. He's an offense to God. That's where David is. That's how he ticks. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people see Goliath, David sees God. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his, David's oldest brother, he heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why have you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? See him? He's like, you know, you're insignificant. What you do is insignificant. And what you do with a few sheep that you had to do? Because that's all you're good is watching a few sheep. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. David, if he was in the flesh at this point, he might say, oh yeah, some battle. He Look at you quaking and, free, and all afraid. Let's go see you fight him. You big sissy, you know, and he might say that if he were in the flesh. You've come down here to see the battle, not much of a battle, Eliab. And David said, what have I done now? And you get the impression there, I mean, David's just constantly, his brother's always, he just can't do right. We already know he's the youngest in his father's estimation. He's the youngest in his family. Everybody looks at him, he's the runt of the litter. He's just the punk little kid brother. It's not good for nothing, but stinking up the field with the sheep. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? And that's the thing. There is a cause. And David seems the only one who hears the cause. This man defies the armies of the living God. And then he turned from him toward another and he said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. What is going on here with this guy? Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul And he sent for him. Why did they report it to Saul? Because there wasn't even a hint of somebody taking such audacious audacious exception to to what this guy was doing, this, this, this giant was doing. Everybody's just fearful, quaking. David's the only one that shows any sort of moxie, any sort of, hey, what is up with this? Why are we putting up with this? People are like... Well, we need to tell the king. I mean, gee whiz, this is the first guy that showed like he's got any guts to do anything about this. And so Saul sent for him, and then David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, remember who it is that's saying this. David's a kid, right? And he's still a kid at this point. So when he tells this guy, your servant's going to go fight the Philistines. It comes out more like, hey, your servant's going to go fight the Philistines. He's like, what? And Saul said to David, verse 33, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth. Your voice hasn't even changed for crying out loud. And he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and 
took a lamb out of the flock. I went out after it. I struck it and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Why? Because David's so bad? No, here's how he qualifies it. Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David's first discussion was focused on the Lord. Everybody else, they're majoring in Goliath. All David can do is talk about the Lord. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David shows up discussing God. Nobody else does. The soldiers don't mention God. His brothers don't, don't mention his name. David steps on the stage and it's the first thing out of his mouth. And he does the same thing with King Saul. Hey, no chit-chat about the battle. No chit-chat about, hey, so uh, I understand, you know, your, your, your daughter, you know, I get her, is she hot? You know, none of that. David's whole thing is, hey, the Lord who delivered me from, from the lion and the bear, he'll deliver me from this guy, this knucklehead right here. The Lord, that's, that's David's focus. No one else discusses God. David discusses no one else but God. Write that down. I could sum up this entire message. That's it. No one else discusses God. David discusses no one else but God. I want you to think about that giant again. Think about it in those terms. In fact, as we read David's words here, as I count, there's nine references to the Lord, two references, or nine references to the Lord, two references to Goliath. Over, over, four, over four to one. Focus is on God. Now, are you focused that much on your God or are you focused that much on your giant? Brings us to the fourth point. We must fight our giants. Or we must fight our giants. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he also clothed him with a coat of mail And David fastened his sword, Saul's sword, to his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these, for I've not tested them. And so David took them off. Get what's happening here. David is now told by Saul, well, you're going to need some protection. You've got to put my armor on. And Saul's armor, just to state this as quickly and to the point as I can make it, It's all about the flesh. It's not about what David is used to, trusting in the Lord and and walking in the armor of the Lord and letting the the Lord be his protection. And so David's like, if I go out and I fight this battle the way you fought the battle, which he hadn't fought the battle at all, I'm going to lose. And that's the temptation for us. A lot of times we face a Goliath and we're like, how am I going to fight this battle? And then this is the only, this, this, the, uh, the, this in my notes, it just sort of comes to my mind, all right? Hadn't even prepared to say any of this, but here's the deal. A lot of times we go through, I'll just share my own personal testimony. I got in a situation where, where I made a train wreck of my finances. I was working in the fire department, and, you know, there's always overtime in the fire department. 
And I started working like when I was 18 years old in this line of work. So I had a messed up concept of money. And that was this, that I just spent it. And if I didn't have enough, I worked overtime and got more. Because there's always overtime. And so then I got to the place where now I'm working at the fire department. Now I'm working on the side as a, for a private ambulance company on my days off. And then it got so bad, I ran out of days of the week that I could work. I would take vacation days from the fire department so that I could get paid at both places. And I'd go work at, you know, and I just completely messed up my money. And I'm there talking to God. I'm like, what on earth am I going to do? God takes me Isaiah and he shows me the futility of idols. And God basically says, money's your idol, Ted. And you've messed it up. If you start managing your money the way I want you to manage, I'll change everything. You put me first. Worship me with your money. Worship me with your heart. And he changed it. But I was trying to fight the money battle in the, in the, in the flesh. I was trying to fight the money battle by, hey, how can I engineer to, to, to make my paycheck bigger? God's like, why don't you just trust me with your money and be faithful with it like I tell you to be? And, and I'll, I'll magically turn things around. You will not have more month than money. You'll have more money than month. And we try so often to fight these spiritual battles in the flesh. So David took him off, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch, which he had had, and the sling which was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And so the Philistine came, and he began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him, and when David, or rather, when the Philistine looked around and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. Basically, when the Philistine looked around, the implication is he had to find David. He didn't see him at first. You know, he's like, what? This kid? Are you serious? And so the Philistine said to David, verse 43, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. There's someone in trouble here right now. It ain't me. Because you've defied God. You're not fighting me. You're fighting God. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses, and let me just say that again. This day I'm going to fight you and I'm going to, right? This is him. That's what's going on here. And all the Lord world may know that there is a God in Israel and then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save by sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried, and he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. 
And then David put his hand in his bag, he took out a stone, and he slung it, and it struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to earth. There's so much here, and I just have to gloss over it, but basically, you know, we see this exchange, Jesus in the, you know, in the wilderness with the, with the, the devil, and, and, and the Lord speaking, and he talks about how the serpent is going to strike your heel, but he is going to crush your head. How the Lord Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan when he defeated him on the cross of Calvary, dying on the cross for our sin in our place and rising again on the third day. And this is a picture, this battle between David and Goliath of, of the, the Lord Jesus defeating Satan. And so he tosses this stone and it sinks into his forehead. It crushes his head. What a great picture there. And so it says, and he fell on his face to the earth in verse 56 so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him but there was no sword in the hand of David and therefore David ran and he stood over the Philistine took his the Philistines Goliath's sword and he drew it out of his sheath and he killed him and he cut off his head with it when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead they fled they fled. You go, wait a minute. I read, it says he killed him with a stone, and then it says he killed him with a sword. What happened? He just made sure. He killed him with a stone, and then he took his sword out, and he cut his head off. And we'll read later next week that he took that head as a trophy with him. And here, hey, I got him. You know, he's got this head, right? Just crushed that thing. Here's, here's where I want to close. Just close on this. Look, David knew the battle belonged to the Lord. Here's the, the, the fourth and final point, that we must fight our giants. We have to fight, okay? David knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. He said, this day the Lord will deliver you in my hand. But when Goliath ran at him, he didn't just look up to heaven and say, okay, Lord, now it's time for you to do it. No, he ran to the battle line and he engaged in the fight, okay? And what he understood is that he had something that he was supposed to do in the battle. Yes, it's the Lord's battle, but I've got a responsibility to fight the battle. And many Christians struggle at this very point. They're like, well, wait a minute, is God supposed to do it or am I supposed to do it? Yes, God's supposed to do it, and you are supposed to respond obediently. It's been said, pray like everything depends on God, and work like everything depends on you. It's been said, when a farmer prays for crops, he says amen with a plow. Okay? And this is the idea here. And notice, David didn't just fight Goliath, he ran to fight him. Let me ask you this question. How long has it been since you have run to fight your giants. We tend to retreat. We tend to duck. We tend to, you know, just go and hide. We tend to bury our heads in the sand. We, we hide and retreat behind a desk of work or we crawl into a nightclub of distraction or we sit in front of a TV of escape or we jump into a bed of sexual sin. And for a moment, for a season... We feel safe, we feel insulated, we feel anesthetized, but then the work runs out, the booze wear off, the lover leaves us, and we hear Goliath again, his voice booming, threatening. Listen, here's how I close. Today, you have a giant, 
Try a different tact. Rush your giant with a God-saturated soul. You be that person who says, man, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get plugged into fellowship and be strengthened by the body of believers. And I'm going to get myself to a place where I spend more time talking and focusing on my God rather than my giant. So that when the giant comes, I can say, sick him, God, let's go. We can, you and me together, you and God are a majority. God and God is a majority. And so it's a matter of being in that place. Focus on your giants, you stumble. Focus on God, and your giant will tumble.